All right, we're gonna try something new today. Um, doing a little live election reaction. We just got the majority government call from the networks. So um, three of us are hopping on the line tonight. Kids are in bed and we're just gonna go for, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes and uh, give our initial take on the election results. And um, yeah, talk about some of the exclusive polling that we ran during the campaign where this points our campaigns uh, in the post-election period with an NDP majority. And um, yeah, we'll lift the hood a little bit on some of our our uh, strategy during the election. And um, yeah, I think it's gonna be a good time. So I'm Kai Nagata, I work at Dogwood. I'm on Gixan territory in Northern BC. And uh, we've got Lisa and Alexandra joining as well. Yeah, I'm Lisa Sanu. I am digital engagement manager with Dogwood. And I am currently on the unceded territory of the Kwantlen, KC and Femi Nation. Hey everyone, it's Alexandra here. I'm campaigns manager, lead our climate work, and I am on Shishal territory on the Sunshine Coast. So what's the sea count out right now? We've all switched off our uh, our feeds because we're live it's, here. It's 54? an NDP majority. It's, it's like, a majority. There we go, 54-30. Yeah, 50 something. That's pretty convincing. You'd have to have like a very late ferry for them to all miss a vote. I don't think this government's going to go down uh, as the bells ring in the legislature. This is a solid majority government. So we've got an NDP government led by John Horgan for the next four years. Um, initial impressions? Uh, some interesting things out in Langley, I must say. Um, Mary Polak, who is longtime BC Liberal, she was a cabinet minister. Um, she may be unseated in Langley by NDP newcomer. Also in Langley East, really tight race. Uh, last I looked, Megan Dykeman for the NDP was leading, and that used to be Rich Coleman's seat. So um, things are things are heating up out here in Langley uh, in a way I've never seen before. Yeah. Three votes for the Greens. Um, I know there was a lot of nervousness or you know chatter yesterday. Um, you know that the NDP were really going for some of those green seats on the island in particular. Um, so definitely pleased to see they're holding on to three at least, maybe four. But so um, Sonia Bristino, Adam Olson holding on to their seats, and uh, I think it's going back and forth between uh, West Nancy Disguy, Jeremy Valeriotti, and Cookie Crest, uh, Nelson Creston, right? And I'm gapping on the name there. Anyone remember? Yeah, Nicole Charlwood is. Uh... Just a hair behind, uh, oh, she's about three points back now from Brittany Anderson. Yeah, uh, seven different ridings, I think, where the Greens were leading at different points this evening, which I've never seen before on an election night. So they've got to be feeling pretty pretty good about that. And it gives them sort of a sense of where to put resources and uh, organizing muscle over the next uh, few years, I suppose. Um, I got to say, like on a strategy level, you, you got to hand it to the New Democrats. Uh, it was a little bit ruthless to go to an election when the Green Party had like a leader for seven days, but they accomplished exactly what they set out to do. They rolled the dice, they got their majority, the voters didn't punish them too much for the pandemic election call. Um, and if you walk back a few steps, I mean, the reason why they're able to form a majority government today with like 44% of the vote is because they torpedoed our chances at electoral reform with <laughs> the referendum that prevented um, you know, what would have been like a, uh, a permanent green foothold in the legislature. So if you look at the results tonight, the popular vote, you know, if the greens had a 16% pop, 
popular vote, that's like 18 seats in the legislature in BC. It would be impossible to, um, to govern without them um, forever. And I think that the brain trust and the NDP wanted to avoid that scenario, always has. And this election was always about getting out from under that CASA, not having to govern with the Greens looking over their shoulder and um, you know, ultimately trying to crush them and take seats, uh, which didn't work out on the island. But I think in terms of marginalizing the Greens and taking them out of that catbird seat in the legislature, that was, uh, that was the unspoken goal of the NDP campaign and they pulled it off. So, um, you know, a little ruthless, like I said, but you got to hand it to them in terms of uh, just pure, pure bare knuckle political strategy. Yeah, I mean, the Greens tried to hold them accountable to that. They said, like, why would the NDP launch us into an election? I don't know if anybody sitting where the NDP were in the polls going into the election would have made a different call. I mean, um, but it was a gamble. We didn't know what the COVID numbers were going to do. They did go up um, with school coming back in. Schools could have gotten closed. Um, big gamble for the NDP on that one. But um, I think we heard early on that they thought voters would forget this by the time they were in their ballots and, and clearly they were right. So it wasn't a voting issue. Although a lot of COVID issues in general were, were the main things on people's minds when they made their decision. So um, traditionally we've seen things like, I don't know, climate coming to the top of campaigns uh, platforms. Maybe didn't see that as strongly this time, at least from the NDP. So um, COVID dominated for sure in the platforms. Um, yeah, but maybe it didn't make a difference in, in whether people were punishing the NDP for calling an election in the first place. And it's clearly going to impact how soon we have final results, right? Like this is, you know, it's in uncomfortable territory. It doesn't sound like this is going to be the nail biter that we saw in 2017 in terms of those, those tight races. That was another question mark, right? Going into tonight was, will we all be waiting for, you know, two, three weeks to find out what's happening in our writing or, you know, broadly speaking across the province, but it doesn't look like that panned out. Um, yeah, at least yeah, not a crowd voting. <laughs> like I was in the poll, I was there today, right? I voted today. I didn't vote in advance and I went off with my kid and cast my ballot and they were saying it was just super busy all day, right? Like didn't um, have the impression folks who'd been working in the polling stations like multiple years that this was a different, a different scenario on the day as it turned out for, for a day of election. Yeah, I mean, across the province, it's clear the NDP are not going to lose their majority when the mail-in ballots get counted. It's still 13 days until we hear what happens with the the final results i i don't know all the specifics of like how close each um writing is and how many mail-in ballots are for that writing um to know what specifically is going to change hands but i imagine there might be a couple that that turn out a little differently 13 days from now um it's, it's not going to be like 2017 where we all waited around for courtney comox to to slip in and and ended up switching um from the liberals to the ndp but um Certainly, certainly something I imagine would, would look different. I just don't have those statistics. Well, we did see some polling during the final days of the campaign asking whether people had voted already by mail and what their sort of vote preference was. And I think it was about 50% about for the NDP. So if anything, I'd expect the NDP vote count to strengthen a little bit as those mail-in ballots come back. Because I think, you know, the folks that were most excited about, about voting early um, were the people who were who were fired up about, um, you know, rewarding the government for its handling of the pandemic, the kinds of people who are like, you know, excited to try voting by mail and who are super COVID conscious and, you know, they're really taking the social distancing seriously, um, I think are people who are really bought in on the government's uh, handling of COVID. And it's not surprising that there was a, such strong support for the incumbents. Um, and speaking of polling, uh, 
Unlike 2013, my God, uh, looks like the polling held, which has got to be like a sigh of relief for all the polling firms who've uh, missed calls over the last few years in different elections. But um, I don't know, what are we looking at right now in terms of popular vote? 35 for the Liberals, 44 for the NDP, 16 for the Greens. That's pretty much bang on in terms of what we were seeing for vote intention. And it held pretty steady. This wasn't like a surge election where, you know, um, one party just starts taking off in the last week, like uh, Rachel Notley in 2015 in Alberta or, you know, the federal Liberals uh, the same year. So, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty hold steady election. And I think the pollsters have got to feel pretty good about, uh, about their calls. But um, yeah, once again, we live in a system where 44% support gets you a, a thumping majority. Um, Lisa, you were talking about um, just some of the factors that, that led to Horgan uh, calling the election when he did. You want to talk more about just why we had this election? Why, why we're <laughs> sitting here tonight? Well, I mean, Horgan was the most popular premier in the country um, all summer. BC has handled the pandemic um, incredibly well. I don't, I don't know whether we can credit the government or, or to Bonnie Henry or, or to people like actually doing social distancing. Um, but, but Horgan was. BC has a lot of like Asian diaspora communities that took the, the quarantine measures really, really seriously. who are wearing masks and yeah. social distancing and shutting down restaurants in January. So I think you got to give some credit just to everyday British Columbians for, yeah, having that discipline early on. I think it kept our case numbers low. Absolutely. Um, but Horgan reaped the rewards in the polls. <laughs> um, so, I mean, he's going in, he went into September really strong, but like I mentioned, it was a gamble. Um, we had schools opening again, didn't know if those would shut down, if those shut down, parents get angry, or, um, you know, if there's an exposure event at school, um, people, people's lives are at risk. So that's a big gamble for them to take. Um, uh, but like I said, they took it and it, it clearly paid off for them. Um, it's, it's kind of an interesting watching the pandemic come too because they've been printing money. Um, it's, they've been spending money on people like, and, and federally as well. Um, like money has no value. <laughs> um, and, and that, turns out. Suddenly and debt, debt, no big deal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and like, it's been shocking seeing that shift, you know, yeah. after like the last 20, 30 years of neoliberal politics around austerity and, and debt that has just like melted like a snowstorm in July. It's, it's been crazy to watch. Yeah, and those like social measures that, um, that sort of like social net that um, typically the NDP puts forward, but, but more fiscal conservatives don't appreciate, uh, don't support that, um, definitely kind of melted away and everybody understood that we were all working together to keep, keep the province afloat. Um, that being said, it'd be nice to see that in other areas. I mean, around the overdose crisis, um, some, some spending has been called for there, same with climate. Um, so it, it would be nice to see this like pan-partisan, um, I wanna say like, yeah, spending for, for things that matter and to lift up our communities together, um, continue forward, but, but only time will tell. Um, yeah. Sure, plenty of people have drawn the parallels, right, between COVID and the climate crisis, you know, and the, the, exactly what we need is decisiveness, this readiness to spend, the readiness to um, to take these bold shifts in our personal lives and our political lives um, when, when a crisis is in front of us. And the problem is climate change has always been described as a slow-moving crisis rather than something that's, you know, threatening us in this very moment. But of course, wildfires, as we just saw, have, have revealed that it is threatening us here and now, and that kind of, yeah, 
you know, Seth Klein, who has, you know, recently talked about, he has a book out called the, the Good War and does a really great job of showing that kind of mobilization that we've seen on COVID and how that could really um, turn things around if we were to adopt that approach on climate change. What do you, what do you make of the, uh, the ground we've lost, Alexandra? Like, electorally and politically, I was just thinking today about 2006 or 2007 when Al Gore came out with Inconvenient Truth and there was like this sense of urgency around climate and politics and, you know, we're in 2020 and the Greens were in their strongest position ever. You know, like the coin flip landed on its edge in 2017. That was their moment. And now, you know, they're, they're out of that position. Where do you think that's going to take us with, um, you know, the NDP being able to govern with that majority and not, not have the Greens, uh, you know, holding that, um, that yeah. three seat wedge over them? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky, right? And I think, you know, that's definitely been the other reason that's been voiced around why we had this election is, yeah, we had the desire to kind of get out from that, uh, from holding the balance of power, right? And I think there's been some healthy skepticism about that as well, that, you know, that was, that was an excuse that was voiced quite explicitly around um, a couple of different bills, Bill 2017, which was a, a kind of energy, uh, energy bill um, that the Greens and the Liberals worked together to, um, to get tabled and that kind of thing. So there were a few different instances where, um, you know, during this campaign anyway, Hargan and others pointed to, you know, the Greens holding back their agenda. Personally, I'm a little skeptical of that, that, you know, the reasons that Lisa outlined earlier and the, you know, the opportunity to grab that majority probably being more of a driving force. But, um, you know, for a lot of environmental voters, a lot of climate voters, you know, we held hope. We thought, look, the Greens have the balance of power. How can we, um, this is our moment, right, as you say. And the Greens did, they did their best. They did a lot. They voted against, you know, subsidies time after time after time. They um, obviously, you know, were, um, were doing the best they can, but we still saw this lack of progress on all these issues we all care so much about. Um, so, you know, that is a kind of depressing and quite scary prospect when we have, if we see what happened with the Greens holding the balance of power on LNG, on old growth, on site C, on, you know, a whole bunch of things on just like lack of ambition on climate, broadly speaking. What do we do now with a with a strong NDP majority? We've got three seats, perhaps, from the Greens, um, but those aren't the balance of power seats. So I know a lot of people are going to be feeling worried. I personally just kind of have that that big question, right? Of like, what what's our role now going forward? When you know, what are us as a social movement? It's us, right? Like, it's us who are going to have to do that job, and we're going to have to really support the Greens because they don't have that same um, yeah that same strength that they had before. And of course. Even that wasn't enough to move us farther and faster on climate, particularly the way we you could, um, you could flip that around, though. I mean, I remember covering the Quebec legislature when uh, when Quebec Solidaire got their first seat. And there's a role for like truth tellers in the legislature. And I think when the Greens were bound by the CASA agreement, and especially under Weaver, who really enjoyed, you know, being part of government and had this notion that they were sort of like part of a, you know, this important coalition. And I think that sense was really fed by, by Horgan. He played to Weaver's ego a lot around, uh, you know, the significance of the CASA. And without that agreement, you know, the Greens are, they're under less obligation to sort of um, play by the NDP's agenda, right? And they have, I think, more leeway perhaps to try to use what resources they have to broaden the conversation, to make sure that uh, somebody in the legislature is speaking out because the BC Liberals are unlikely to, to take up that mantle as the official opposition. So, you know, it might free them in some ways to, um, to say things that they couldn't say when they were bound by the CASA. I have a couple other theories or just observations about the timing of the election. And um, 
yeah, we'll see. We'll play this tape back in a couple of years and see if it's true. But um, I think that uh, there's a big problem in the NDP base with indigenous resistance, especially to you know fracking projects like the the coastal gas link pipeline, big publicly subsidized, you know, old school, uh, you know, big money infrastructure projects. When you've got the cops pointing rifles at people and you know throwing people in their face down in the snow, NDP supporters and voters and staff and donors, they really don't like that. Uh, and we saw that split the party and we see, I think a growing call to action, um, you know, people using the shutdown Canada hashtag again, the last couple of weeks in response to these unrelenting assaults on indigenous communities across Canada. And that I think is reaching a boiling point. If, if Horgan had left this election a couple of weeks later, who knows uh, what's going to unfold in response to the Mi'kmaq fishery attacks, the, uh, the raid on Landback Lane in, uh, in Haudenosaunee territory, and of course, um, Trans Mountain construction and coastal gas link here in BC. So I think something is going to boil over very soon. And, you know, if that had happened before an election call, uh, who's to say how that would have played out? So, you know, going early was, um, it made sense from, from the perspective of keeping the NDP base together and focused on healthcare and these sort of motherhood and apple pie issues that none of them can really disagree on. Whereas, you know, if you've got the provincial police, um, you know, going in like cowboys uh, raiding indigenous communities, that is going to split the NDP base. And that would be, I think, really demoralizing as it was for the last um, couple of, of raids on Wet'suwet'en territory when we saw a bunch of NDP uh, donors and supporters tearing up their membership cards. And the last thing is Site C. I mean, this thing is going to be a complete train wreck. And the Narwhal article that came out a couple of days before the election revealed that uh, they've known about this for 18 months, that the foundation is not solid, that this might not be a project that can be completed. The engineers don't know how to fix it and BC Hydro doesn't know how much it's going to cost. So if this dam can't be built and we've blown eight or $10 billion on it, if hydro rates go up, it's not just environmentalists who are going to be pissed off. It's going to be anybody with uh, with a hydro bill, right? And it's going to be the government of the day. You can't just keep blaming the BC Liberals when you're deep into your second term. They were the ones who decided to go ahead with this project. And they're the ones who, it looks like, covered up the fact that this dam has serious geological issues. They're going to cost ratepayers billions of dollars. So somebody's going to have to be held responsible for that. And I think if they had left that, um, you know, and, and even gone to an election next fall, stuff was going to come out about this massive boondoggle on the Peace River that is going to be really, really damaging to the NDP. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see uh, senior ministers uh, losing their jobs over this. So we'll see how the Site C fiasco plays out. But I think that was another reason why um, actually it was former Dogwood staffer Mike Soron was on Twitter saying this is, we're going to look back in a couple of years and see that this was a big factor in the election timing was was going before the public really got a grasp on how bad the the screw up uh, has been on site C. And they're going to grapple with that really soon, right? Like we're expecting a report out in the next few weeks. You know, obviously they are waiting for the election, but from what um, Minister Heyman and I think even in in the leaders' debate, you know, there was a real shift in tone from both of those folks saying, you know, previously they were pressing ahead, this is happening, and the the tone was very much like we will be making a decision, we'll be looking at this news, and if it makes sense, we'll you know keep all our options on the table and that looks like something they're gonna face and grapple with and and where as you say this is going to be on them in the end not on the liberals who pushed it past the point of no return um soon well, so it's gonna be like 
you know, sure. the first exciting thing, the new dumpster fire, the financial dumpster fire that is, you know, BC Hydro's finances. Yeah. There is no point of no return if you can't build the dam. <laughs> like if they physically can't anchor the foundations, uh, there's no point of no return. They should cancel it. Do you want to talk about the, just the goals that we had going into this election and, and uh, how those panned out, lessons learned? Lisa, I know you were supporting the Vote 16 team, the youth team on, uh, on lowering the voting age. You want to talk about the, the goals that we had there and, and what we're carrying over? Yeah, the, so Dogwood has been supporting this team of about 50 um, grassroots youth who are, are running this, this um, campaign to lower the voting age. Um, they're an incredible group. Um, they're incredible organizers and communications, and they're just really just a lot of fun to work with. Um, they had a commitment going into this that they to see lowering the voting age in every platform um, for the major political parties. Um, they were able to get that for the BC Greens um, and, and full credit where credit is due. They worked very hard and, and, and talked to the Greens a lot. Um, they did have a resolution passed by the Greens last year um, in support of lowering the voting age and, and the Greens have had that in their platform before. So, um, so it, was a, it was a pretty exciting win for them as well. Um, on the NDP, at the NDP convention last fall, um, they did organize a, um, a resolution to lower the voting age and, and it was passed with like overwhelming support. Um, but we haven't heard anything about it since then. And, and they were hoping to see some of the conversations come up again um, and, and maybe see it in the quorum, but um, they hadn't seen that this time. Some candidates did tell us that they were in support. Um, so, the team, will, the team will look for that after, um, look to those people who were elected after, after the election and the dust settles to, to see what we can do in the legislature. Um, but they were, they were thoroughly disappointing. I mean, we, uh, the Greens came in and they said like, we, we support youth and we support youth in every way. They ran a 17 year old candidate who turned 18 right before the election. Um, and then I think seven other candidates under the age of 25. And so they were really committed to youth issues. Um, the NDP, not so much. I mean, we didn't see any big um, jumps in their, their campaign um, and their, their platform promises anyways. They played a very safe race um, because, because they were so strong in the polls. They didn't need to court the youth vote. And, and it becomes a self, unfortunately, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when you say like, well, youth don't vote or they don't vote for me, um, my party. So, so why get them anything to vote for? And it just becomes this cycle. Um, so... So they were maybe a little disappointed, but, but some fruitful things to go forward with there. Um, but it, it, I mean, it does beg this question, right? Like what, what, is, what are they afraid of? Like what, what are people afraid of when they engage with youth? What are they afraid that youth will do? Um, so I think, I think there's, a, there's something, something to do with youth. They're, they're organizing, they're, they're bringing out 100,000 people into the streets for a climate march and, uh, and they're, they're a force to be reckoned with and, and the like institutional politics need to like take a step back and, and realize that. Um, so it's a freight yeah. train. You can either get on board or you can, you can get in the way. Yeah. And you mentioned the Saanich South candidate for the Greens, uh, Kate yeah. O'Connor. I don't think this is the last we've heard from, uh, from Kate O'Connor. I was watching power and politics and she was on like a national political panel, totally holding her own. She's really like articulate and on the ball. She's incredible. She's yeah. like 18 years old. So I would be threatened. She's if I not was, an exception. No. And she's, she's, she's I mean, from talking to 
a lot of the folks that are working on the Vote 16 campaign. Um, yeah, just their analysis and their commitment and just their clear-eyed view of how all the issues link together. I don't think I thought I was a total shithead when I was 17. Like, I, I don't think I can't even imagine myself <laughs> going on power in politics that like, it's just, it's, it's been so inspiring to watch, but I would be threatened if I was running against her. Like, that's the thing is like these, um, it's mostly young women. <laughs> They're incredibly powerful and you can't attack them. Like you can't, you can't do the same old dirty politics and try to undermine them. Right. You actually have to fight them toe to toe. And that's really scary. So I can see why people in power in this province are, are threatened by that. <laughs> connect the dots between issues, right? Like the way, you know, of course, yeah. their power is threatened by uh, organized people who are connecting systemic racism with climate justice, with capitalism yeah. and the structures that are, are keeping so many different kinds of people down, right? So when that is a direct threat to the status quo and to those who benefit from and hold power through the status quo, and that is exactly what these youth are showing us. And of course, therefore, it's a threat to the large majority of office holders continue as they continue to be that demographic, right? And that's exactly it. I mean, you said you were uh, this kid that wouldn't have been involved in this stuff when you were when you were younger, but like the, the, all of these issues are coming to a head right now. Indigenous rights, um, racial justice, climate justice, climate change, they have no choice. Like yeah. at this point, their life, their lifespans will be shortened by climate change. Their communities will be devastated. They have no choice. And by the simple characteristic of being young, their lives are greatly greater impact on their lives um, than for us. And, and so no, the end game is not to lower the voting age. The end game is to lower the voting age so they can have better um, policies um, to help their lives. They're literally fighting for their lives at this point. Um, and yeah, so I mean, we haven't heard the last of them. Youth are going to be a disruptive force um, to politics, and and um, it's it's a privilege to work with them. I agree. Um, if people were watching Dogwood's social media channels, I mean, you would have heard a lot from us about oil and gas subsidies. Alexandra, do you want to talk about our our strategy there and uh, why we chose to focus so uh, relentlessly on that topic for uh, for the last five weeks? Yeah, it's funny. I was just thinking of chatting about this and I was like, I, we must sound like a broken record at this point, right? <laughs> Whenever we mention the words oil and gas subsidies, anyone who's been following us is like, we're done, we're bored of this. But, um, you know, I still get angry, literally, like I feel my blood pressure rise every time I sit down and actually think about the concept of us paying these companies who are fueling climate change, who are getting rich, richer off um, the climate crisis, our tax dollars. Like it, it literally makes me angry every time. Um, and it's not new for us. We've been working on this for several years now. We've been working federally um, around subsidies that we did a lot of the same kind of messaging, same kind of work in the federal election last year. Um, so this is definitely something that um, Dogwood has been actively engaged on and, and pushing forward in other forms for, um, for a long time now. And in this election, I think, in, you know, it's, it is the pass-fail test really for anyone who's serious about climate action. It is, um, such a basic first step, the idea of stopping handing over cash to you know, these companies that are, are, are causing the climate crisis to get worse. It shouldn't be a hard thing, it should be a no-brainer. And I think when we saw some candidates um, entering the race who had been so vocal on this issue in the past, I mean, we had three MPs who, um, you know, if you've seen our videos and they're shouting at Trudeau, telling him to get serious about climate change and cancel on gas subsidies. So we had three of those, as well as a couple, um, we had Sharma and others who had 
um, who had been really passionate within the last year about ending subsidies. So we kind of had this, um, you know, really thought, let's put that out there. Let's let's put this ask out there to all candidates to make this commitment to uh, when in government to to end these subsidies. Um, and really, you know, did a lot of work to kind of give them that opportunity, ask our folks to ask their candidates what they thought, did a lot of, um, you know, videos and fantastic stuff going out there and really put that content in front of them and said, you know, what, what do you say? What are you going to do if you get elected? Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> in a similar vein, not a single one um, stepped up and, and um, voiced the same values, the same statements that they had, had done in other forums, which is disappointing. It's disappointing to climate voters. Um, it doesn't, I don't personally feel like they're likely to, once they're in office, get bolder than they would have been now when they're trying to win that, win that seat. Um, it, you know, now was the time for them to make, to make those comments. Um, so that's, you know, that's a little bit disappointing to say the least. Um, in terms of the different parties where they all, you know, where they all broke down, obviously the Greens um, were made a big thing of this in their, in their platform and in their campaign. I think they really saw this thing as this kind of wedge issue of, of defining, you know, what, what serious climate action looks like. Um, the NDP has promised to review royalty credits. That was their, um, you know, that's how they responded to that question. The royalty credits are kind of like the rent that, um, you know, get mostly fracking companies pay to the citizens of BC for extracting this resource that, you know, that belongs to, to all of us. Um, uh, but it's only like about a fifth, right, of the total pie. It's about a fifth of the $1 billion in subsidies that gets handed over. And personally, I mean, a review, a kind of blue ribbon panel at some point in the future to review a problem when we have eight years left to address this crisis and to uh, turn the ship around uh, doesn't sound to me like, you know, like seriousness, it doesn't sound like, it's like the urgency, the boldness that we're all expecting and needing from governments right now. But it does give us an opportunity to hold this majority government. This is our, this is our way in, right? And this is how we're going to keep working um, with, our, with the Green um, MLAs and with the movement that we've built. Uh, that will be the you know a great opportunity when that review comes forward to uh, to really hold their feet to the fire and, and push them further. Yeah, and hopefully expand the the terms of review and get more more things uh, counted as subsidies. I hear you on the anger. I think for me it's both anger and like physical revulsion, like like physical disgust. And uh, we put a video out that um, ah you know it was a it was an experiment, but. Uh, one of our uh, our freelance editors put together a really funny sort of like horror uh, parody with um, like a bunch of parasites, just like ticks and grubs and things. And that is how I feel like that's how I want everybody in BC to feel uh, after like another two years of this campaign when they hear oil and gas subsidies. I want them to feel like there's like something growing in the political body of BC that is like feeding off of our public dollars that is like squeezing out the other things that we could be funding and investing in um, just a malignant boil that needs to be just lanced. <laughs> when we ran the ban big money campaign, our joke slogan was Lance the boil 2017 or whatever. And yeah, I mean, I, I still, I've had that same kind of gut level physical revulsion around oil companies taking tax dollars from British Columbians. Um, but yeah, speaking of ban big money, um, Lisa, I think you haven't been getting a lot of credit publicly. Uh, you know, there's been a few articles in the newspapers about how the campaign finance rules have led to a, a more polite and, you know, uh, above board, uh, you know, small dollar campaign. But do you want to reflect a little bit just on, on, um, 
ban big money and the whole journey towards uh, more transparent, more accountable government? This election was completely different in that way, hey? Like in 2017, we saw huge amounts of money. Like uh, the Acolinis wrote a check in the lead up to the 2017 election, a single check for $100,000. Like you can't do that anymore. So I think they, CBC ran some numbers and said this year, um, or in 18 last year, nope, not last year. Um, sorry, the year after the ban big money legislation came in, 2018. Um, the Liberals and the NDP raised $3 million as opposed to $16 million the year before. Um, and, and those are coming now from, from small, small donors um, and individual human beings who actually live here. So um, a huge difference. And, and, and it's affected the parties in different ways. The Greens have fared fairly well. I mean, a lot of donations came from small-time um, individual donors as well. Um, the NDP seems to have fared relatively well compared to the BC Liberals who just cannot get their feet under them when it comes to fundraising. Um, and I, there was this quote from, uh, from uh, BC Liberal strategist after the Ban Bring Money legislation came in and she said like, you know, um, our party is funded by a diverse group of individual British communes who share our values. And you're like, but it, it wasn't clearly because um, you just can't seem to raise the same amount of money. So um, it did make a difference in what, in what voters saw. Um, we didn't see the same level of campaigning that we saw before. Some of that might be COVID related, like no buses around the province, but um, yeah, it's, it's definitely made a difference for sure. Um, that being said though, like when water is trickling in, it's always gonna find a way, a way through, um, through the wood and, unless you seal it up and, and there's, Facebook now releases all of their advertising and makes that all transparent. So you can see like how um, third party um, advertisers during the election are, are trying to influence policy in their own way. And, and so I think there's, there's still a lot to be done um, to, to make it truly accountable. And, and, and we might be seeing some of the hangout of that still. So like in 2017, which was an election year and the last year that you could donate um, as a union or a corporation with that, those big checks. Um, the steelworkers gave $1.1 million to the NDP in a single year and, and wrote a check for $500,000 right before they were single check, right before um, it dropped that you weren't allowed to do that anymore. Um, and, and there's some questions there, right? Like the steelworkers have been big advocates of the LNG industry. So um, there, there might be some hangovers there that, that British communes need to ask some questions about and, and that we need to seal up some of the cracks still. Yeah, and there's just other ways of exerting influence, right? Like uh, Mark Marison, big uh, BC Liberal strategist was saying on Twitter that the, the line item in the budget for like influencing politics at big corporations hasn't gone anywhere. It's, just, it's not going to like, you know, buying tables at banquets anymore, but they're going to find other ways of um, spending to influence not just elected office holders, but staff in the premier's office, like senior staff mm -hmm. and civil service, right? You've got all of these uh, deputy ministers and ADMs that have been inexplicably kept over from the BC liberal era, like Basil Millar and uh, until recently, Dave uh, Nicolosian at uh, the Energy Mines and Petroleum Resources Ministry. So you've got these like mm -hmm. hardcore neoliberal BC liberal appointees that Horgan never got rid of. Um, and these guys exert enormous influence. They're the ones who've been running the government for the last five weeks while all the politicians were off, you know, on the campaign trail. And they 
the reality is they, they, they exert a huge amount of influence around uh, especially natural resource and energy policy um, that doesn't change when you change the branding on the, on the government. So there's, you know, mm-hmm. give them a majority. And I worry about the, um, yeah, the access to information that citizens are going to have the, the transparency, the things that we never find out about, like the site C foundations, just, you know, buried for 18 months. Those are the kinds of stories that we're going to have to uh, spend a lot more energy digging up when they've got majority power and all of that power is consolidated in the, in the premier's office. Mm-hmm. And we know those like daily lobbying contacts aren't going down, right? But like that, that's a whole separate basket of influence. And we know that those, you know, the corporate mapping project has done this great job of laying out, you know, this kind of revolving door of just, you know, multiple, I think it's like 15 contacts a day from the oil and gas industry um, to the provincial government. So that's another really <laughs> clear line and a clear, um, you know, uh, explanation for what's happening for what we're seeing when we um, are seeing this lack of ambition. Yeah. Um, I was hoping we could switch gears and talk uh, a little bit about some of the polling we did during the campaign, sort of what that tells us about where British Columbians are at. And, and maybe we'll wrap up just talking about where our, where our campaigns are headed uh, in the future under this uh, strong, stable majority government. Where does that, where does that leave us as campaigners? Um, so we did uh, sign on to a big sort of omnibus poll that was run by Organizing for Change. So we're a member of, uh, of the Alliance Organizing for Change. It's a dozen or so uh, um, groups, mostly environmental and conservation groups in BC. And so we hired McAllister Opinion Research to do a big uh, poll with about 2000 respondents around the province. And um, yeah, I mean, I think there's some there's some interesting uh, bright spots that I did want to highlight that I think are indicative of shifts in the BC uh, populace in the last few years. We've we've asked similar questions or the same questions in the past, and especially around Indigenous rights. I just wanted to highlight a couple of uh, responses that we got. One was um, when we asked about how much influence different groups should have over uh, decisions on resource development in BC. The BC government and First Nations are tied, so. I've never seen that before where uh, you add up all the folks who think that um, they should have uh, quote, like a great deal or a fair amount of influence. And it's 66 and 67% for those two, like Seems far and easy. above any other stakeholder group in, uh, in BC. And so, um, you know, to see them on equal footing with, uh, with the provincial government around land-based decisions is really promising, but we're still not seeing that reflected on the ground. Right, and so um, you know the the BC Legislature passed the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act last fall, um, Bill Forty One, which is a framework uh, to bring our laws into compliance with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. But the real work is yet to come, and that's actually reviewing the laws that are on the books in BC and and updating them to bring them into compliance. And we've got a thousand laws uh, on the books in BC, so there's a huge amount of work that I think grassroots people are going to have to um, keep the pressure on the government to engage in good faith with the first nations leadership council and start picking off these big contentious bills and, and updating them through the lens of, uh, of UNDRIP. Uh, and a lot of those are going to be around um, land-based issues, you know, energy and land management, uh, resource policy, forestry. Um, the other question we asked around indigenous rights was um, just whether whether indigenous nations should have a right to say no to resource projects in their territories, and a plurality, thirty seven percent, said that uh, that they should. And uh, 
there was only, I think, 29% who said the opposite, that Indigenous nations should not be allowed to stop resource projects. So again, I've never seen that before, uh, where more people in BC agree that um, that final decision should be up to Indigenous nations uh, versus, you know, the colonial governments um, when it comes to resource policy. So yeah, uh, I, I think there's, there's some other stuff in the poll that's less encouraging, but in terms of just where the BC public is at around Indigenous jurisdiction, decision-making, and traditional law. Um, this is, you know, you got to give credit to the, to the leaders and, and all of the grassroots folks who have been, um, you know, just, just moving this issue forward over the generations. It's been, a, it's been decades and decades and decades to force British Columbia to this point. The work is not over. Um, you know, we're still seeing violations of Indigenous rights every day. But um, just the fact that the BC public is finally sort of able to wrap their heads around the fact that, you know, the, the BC government is not the sole decision maker on the land is, is encouraging. I think that was, uh, that was one thing that I was really happy to see. Um, you want to talk a little bit about some of what popped out to you, Alexandra, on, on climate issues or on um, other environmental stuff? Yeah, it was an interesting one because it compared a lot of language, like different ways to frame the exact same thing. So um, yeah, language matters, for example, the, the, the numbers are almost opposite when you say fracking or LNG. So this is like a reminder to all of us who work in the campaigning space that um, these are the same substances. <laughs> it's the, the, it's the, you know, these are the same things really. And, and that kind of, um, yeah, that matters. And similarly, you know, it totally shifts whether you say pipeline or, or oil tanker traffic. But broadly speaking, people do not want to see more. They don't want to see more oil tankers on our coast, as we know, as the dogwood community has um, been working on for so long. People are not, are not a fan of fracking, not a fan of, fan of open pit mining. Um, on the flip side, 71% want to see more renewable energy. So these are like really great things to be working with. The public is on side with, you know, what, what um, our community is, is trying to fight for. Um, but the fascinating thing is that they still think the government's doing a good job, which from where I'm sitting is really hard to reconcile, <laughs> you know, when the, when the, the, you know, the kind of opposition to, to these big mega projects, and then we have a government that is um, pushing ahead with, with LNG, with Site C, um, that, you know, Horgan recently called Trans Mountain inevitable. I think his kind of, um, you know, concept of what opposition to Trans Mountain looks like is pretty, is pretty rolled over on that these days, I would say. Um, so that kind of, um, we've got our work cut out for us there. And I think in a, in a few other um, ways as well, like the headline, the other really big one was that only 22% of people are concerned, seriously concerned that BC is not doing enough to address climate change. So like that's on us <laughs> as a movement and as, as campaigners um, and as organizers, like that is our job, right? Our job is to get that number up um, a heck of a lot higher. Um, you know, on the, on, the, on the flip side to that, 70% think it's it's real, it's not you know, unlikely to be stopped, we need to, we need to do stuff now, we need to work on this now. It's not far off in the distance anymore. You know, I started doing this work in like you know, the mid 2000s and it was just, it was a non-issue. People were like, that's a problem for another day. And that is clearly not where we are at anymore. This is, you know, an existential threat. It's in the top three to five issues on most polls, you know, broadly speaking. So that's the, that's the, that's the good news, right? But, um, you know, and we're obviously comparing this um, we're talking, you know, this poll was done in that time of COVID when, you know, we're competing, this issue is, is competing against very real pocketbook issues, very real health issues. Um, and I think that's where this idea of public money to oil and gas really comes in because it links the two, right? It says, 
you know, one of the questions was asked was, you know, billionaires getting rich at the expense of regular people. Not surprisingly, uh, 72% are not, not a fan of that um, because it's a fairness issue, right? It's around, you know, it's coming back to your, your point, Kai, of the, you know, um, it's unfair. It's just fundamentally not the way it should be. We're getting ripped off. And so this is a way to connect um, the kind of moral, um, the moral rationale for climate action that we all feel as with a kind of pocket, you know, the, the, the security, the know that we need to do this for our future, for our kids, and with the kind of here and now and present um, pocketbook issue and fairness issue, which is, which is really where we need to be taking this conversation um, as we go forward. But yeah, work cut out for us, no doubt about it. Yeah, and people have really drunk the Kool-Aid on, on LNG and on Site C. Um, you know, I think <laughs> hindsight's 2020. If everybody had been saying fracking instead of LNG for the last 10 years, I'd be interested to see where these numbers are at today. But man, like people, people have totally bought the industry line that this is a clean fuel that is going to help with climate change. It's going to get, you know, China off coal. And um, I wouldn't be surprised to see the NDP start to incorporate some of that messaging. You know, it's uh, the groundwork has been laid by the by the oil and gas industry, uh, you know, to once again present their products as the solution to this big problem. You know, just like how they invented the whole idea of recycling plastic and everyone went along with it for like 30 years. And then we find out it, none of it gets recycled. It just gets thrown in the landfill. Um, they're they're saying, look, like this fracked methane uh, enormously energy intensive, creates all these earthquakes, leaves, you know, millions of gallons of poison in the ground. Uh, and then you light it on fire and that is good for the climate. It's, uh, <laughs> incredibly potent greenhouse gas leaks out of all the wellheads and pipelines, way worse than CO2 from, you know, the moment it's dug out of the ground to the moment it's burned. And, uh, you know, this is going to be great. This is going to really help us on climate change. And people have bought that because they've just spent millions and millions and millions of dollars hammering that message home. And uh, yeah, we're really gonna have to um, dismantle that one person at a time because people are just not not connecting the dots right now. Christy Clark did a really, really good job selling the whole um, LNG myth. And yeah, Site C, I've been on this kind of Site C tear lately, but man, uh, everyone believes the sunk cost fallacy. There's a reason why it's a thing in psychology. You know, uh, the more money we spend, the more people feel like, well, you know, we've spent too much money, we can't turn back now. But again, if you literally can't build the dam, uh, it's not a good idea to keep spending billions more dollars uh, trying to drill holes in the mud. I think just on that, you know, we kind of drank the Kool-Aid on, you know, on Christy Clark's message. It's very similar. The oil industry as a whole has done a great job of blaming consumers and blaming individuals and individuals have internalized that. And, um, you know, some of that that is reflected in this polling around, you know, you can't blame fossil fuel companies for their product. They're just responding to demand. And, you know, um, that individuals, we all bear responsibility, you know, being a, a higher, came up more higher than, um, you know, the companies must bear responsibility for climate change. But when you look at the numbers overall, historically, and, you know, broadly speaking, the lion's share of emissions is from like a very small number of fossil fuel companies. And that's just reality, right? But they no, 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 it's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not Exxon Mobil starting wars around the world and Saudi Aramco. It's you going to get groceries and driving your kids to soccer. That's who's really, a, that's what's really to blame here. I mean, if you didn't, you know, enjoy your Western uh, living standards, uh, maybe everybody would be better off. Yeah, and I think that comes back to that, you know, the, around, you know, youth being a threat to power. It's the same, it's, it's very much of a similar argument there. There's a, there is invested, 
there is invested power in, tr in trying to keep that message the way it is, right? And it's, it's a very similar, very similar dynamic there, which is, uh, yeah, something we need to, uh, yeah, we are always, we have always, this movement is, that's what it's about, right? It's about revealing that, that Exxon you, we all know this, um, and we need to make that message louder. But where are people at on oil and gas subsidies? Yes, specifically, yeah. So they don't like billionaires getting richer and 61% um, agree with our kind of, you know, our, our pass-fail test from this election, which was stop giving a billion dollars to oil and gas companies, invest that money to transition workers to sustainable industry. Yeah, I think it goes back to <clears throat> what I was saying. And this is how we need to, this is the frame we believe is really the successful way to get, to bring the majority of British Columbians on side with the need to, to you know, pull that money out of the, that sector and push it into a renewable energy, which, you know, 71% support. Um, you know, if you're in the in the climate voter sphere, you're on board with this already. But this is the way to broaden the conversation, broaden the tent, and bring the majority of British Columbians along, which is what we we know we need to do to win to win this kind of a, a fight. And it goes right back to ban big money, right? The reason why I think that campaign was so successful ultimately is that it tied into all these other issues that people cared about. So if you care about affordable housing, if you care about healthcare, if you care about education, these are things that are being starved right now by the fact that a billion dollars a year, plus all of the one-off subsidies like to uh, Coastal Gas Link, uh, you know, that's just a billion dollars that we can't spend on anything else. And so I think that is a great entry point to conversations with, uh, with people around priorities and to govern us to choose. You know, our government is gonna have to decide what is a priority. And uh, you know, the longer that they let this fester, I think the more, I'm back on my sort of grub metaphors, but yeah, the longer this, uh, <laughs> The longer this festers, I think the the worse it's going to be uh, to be a progressive politician in 2020, giving uh, giving tax dollars to oil companies. Um, I make sure of it. We're going to give them a hard time. <laughs> oh yeah, no, we're not we're not done with the uh, we're not done with the oozing grubs or the leeches. Um, just a couple things I wanted to point out that we noticed. Just uh, general questions, not related to our issues. Just where the public is at overall. Uh, you know, we, we asked about vaccines, we asked about uh, masks as a, as a method of uh, slowing down COVID. And, you know, there's like 15 to 20% of people in the province who are either, you know, full on anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, or they are unsure about the public health benefits. Um, and, you know, when you, when you ask about uh, diversity and tolerance, a quarter of people in BC agree that, uh, you know, this country would benefit from less emphasis on diversity and tolerance. So there's, there's, um, you know, these are not huge numbers, but a quarter of our population, you know, um, definitely agreeing with uh, sort of the backlash against uh, against civil rights movements um, in the last uh, few decades. And uh, there was one that we asked that uh, that I found both like encouraging and disturbing, which is the question was uh, whether government is mostly controlled by unelected forces, and 37% of people agree. 27% disagree, 37 are unsure. And in, in many ways, it's true. Like we were talking about the premier's office and the deputy ministers and the political parties. Democracy is controlled in large part by people who are never on the ballot, who you don't have a choice of whether they're in power and you don't get to pick them uh, every four years. And so that's real. And we don't, wanna, we don't wanna lose sight of that. And I think that those people have legitimate concerns um, but there's this overlap with like full on conspiracy thinking. And so we also asked about sort of the flagship um, of the QAnon conspiracy, which is that politicians are involved in covering up child trafficking. And 19% of people in BC agreed 
that many of our politicians are involved in covering up child trafficking. Only 42% of people disagreed, the rest were unsure. And so there's a huge chunk of the population that's absorbing straight up conspiracy theory rhetoric off of mostly YouTube, I would guess, uh, and Facebook. And it is eroding our sort of shared sense of reality. And so I think there's a really important job. We can't ignore this anymore. Like I think for a long time, the, the idea has been to ignore QAnon and ignore conspiracy theories and just you know, laugh at them if they pop their head up in public, but otherwise just drive them to the dark corners of the internet. Well, that's not working because our social media platforms are engineered to deliver this stuff to people and it's working. Um, it's convincing more and more people outside of the demographics that you would imagine are like tinfoil hat conspiracy people. So I think we have a real interesting job ahead of us to, to find the people who agree that government is controlled by unseen forces, that we as the public need to root out power and influence, bring it to the light, hold it up to public scrutiny. We need accountability from our leaders, but pull those people back from like the full-blown conspiracy theories around whatever it is, 5G or masks or coronavirus or child trafficking, because, you know, once, once people go down that rabbit hole, I think it's really hard to get them back. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to point that out and say, you know, uh, used to be everybody read the same newspaper, watched the same newscast, and they all sort of agreed on, you know, how the world fit together. Or at least that's how I imagine the media landscape in the 50s and 60s. And I think that there's something really dark happening now that we can't keep ignoring. Um, just, uh, we're going to have to engage with this. We're going to have to talk to people in our own lives who are, you know, being pulled down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and channel that distrust and alienation in a helpful direction towards the billionaires and the people that are actually screwing us over and ruining our lives. And, uh, you know, if we can do that, then I think we can, we can harness a lot of momentum and, and bring some of our loved ones back from the brink. But yeah, if we keep ignoring it, uh, we're just going to lose more and more people, I think, to, uh, to the 4chans and the 8chans and the, and the YouTube channels. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up. It's a, it's a personal hobby horse, but uh, yeah, I think it's, it's going to shape our work as campaigners over the next few years in ways that uh, we haven't yet begun to wrap our heads around. Um, well, maybe we could start to wrap this thing up. Um, I am curious for your thoughts on where, where our work goes from here. Uh, Lisa, you were hinting at some of the opportunities that are coming up around youth organizing and just the disruptive force that they've created in, in politics. But where do you see, where do you see our work uh, going in terms of supporting these young leaders? Yeah, the team, the team dictates their own strategy and does all the work. Um, Dogwood provides a space. Um, one of one of the team members was on a TEDx panel last week, and and she said, Katia Bannister, she said, um, like what youth need are adults to make space for us, and and that's what Dogwood's trying to do. So they do dictate all the strategy. Um, I don't have any of this. Um, they're doing a pretty good job, um, but from Dogwood's point of view, our mission is to you know restore decision making into the hands of British Columbians over our air, land, and water, and and lowering the voting age is essential to that. Um, so to continue to support their work. I do see opportunities um, coming up, obviously. I, I was talking with some of them tonight and, and they're already planning their GR and, and out reaching out to successful candidates. So, so they have um, some irons in the fire already. Um, we will, unless it's already been announced while we've been on this call, we will most likely see a liberal leadership race in the next year and a half, two years. 
um, which is big opportunities. In the past, uh, 2011, we saw lowering the voting age come up there um, from Mike DeJong put forward that as one of his planks of his um, leadership platform or uh, for his nomination. Um, and so it, it's not a partisan issue. Everybody can support it. And in Scotland, which is one of the more recent uh, relevant examples of lowering the voting age, cross-party support. So, um, so maybe some opportunities around the BC Liberal leadership race, some opportunities with some new MLAs um, in, in government now. And, uh, and, and like I said, they're, they're going to be a completely disruptive force. And, and, and bringing youth along with us is essential to um, having good progressive climate policy and climate-oriented policy um, in government. Um, but even just like lowering the voting age will add 100,000 new voters um, to the electorate, which, which makes um, makes the issues that we share in common with, with youth specifically around climate um, that much more relevant all of a sudden to politicians. And, and if we can get them in when they're in high school and they have the support to vote and, and they learn those skills and they, it's part of the curriculum, um, that voter turnout will, will follow them through their lives. And, and you know, it's going to go up um, through the decades in, in ways that we haven't seen and influence policy. Um, so from a dogwood point of view, we can only win by supporting these youth. Um, as, as for their strategy, I, uh, I'll leave it to them to decide, but, but I hope everybody follows along. Sounds like you have a young voter that uh, might need your attention or are you- uh... saying wrap it up, wrap it up, mommy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <laughs> somebody else is helping her. <laughs> Alexandra, where's, where is your mind going on, uh, on climate issues? Well, I think with um, with oil and gas subsidies, I mean, it was everywhere this campaign, you know, it really was, it was a quite a defining climate issue. So that is definitely an opportunity to follow up with. Um, and, you know, if we get, to, we have three green, three green MLAs, um, they're going to, we're going to strengthen their hand and they obviously want to make a big deal of this going forward. So uh, we're going to keep hammering on that front. Um, but I can't look away from the kind of frontline fight um, that I see coming, you know, that is here already across Canada, obviously, um, but for folks who've been following Trans Mountain and Coastal Gas Link for a long time, it's becoming very real. This is like the, we've been in this kind of phony war phase in, on Trans Mountain. Uh, obviously there has been a very different situation on coastal gassing, but I feel like on Trans Mountain, we've been kind of seeing this moment coming at a distance for so long. And I think we are getting, getting, getting very much close to the point of um, needing to um, support frontline resistance on the ground. Cause that is, you know, this, this pipeline is um, broadly speaking, there is only, you know, 5% of pipe in the ground. There is billions of dollars still to be saved, but on the ground for folks who are um, seeing this in their community, they are saying, we need help, right? We need, we need help to stand up and, and resist this project on the ground. Um, and, you know, the, the big, um, you know, in Sequoia territory, in Kamloops, they're drilling out of the Thompson River right now. There's been a, a big pushback there from um, grassroots Sequoia folks. Uh, we've had nine arrests over the last week. And I think that's um, something we need to amplify. We need to, you know, really support that. It's right in the middle of the election campaign. I think the Trans Mountain movement as a whole has been a little distracted. And that's definitely something I'd like to, uh, we need to kind of bring our, bring our focus back there. At the same time, we have um, folks in Wet'suwet'en territory who are, who are um, also facing their, their river. Is, uh, at this very moment, they're preparing to drill under the river there. Um, 
that's um, a whole different story in that we that was the flashpoint for the kind of national solidarity um, blockades that happened in February. Uh, that's a place where this, um, you know, this group of people have been occupying what is their land for 10 years in uh, resistance and in, you know, opposition to this project. And yeah, it's, it's very real there as well. So, you know, I can't see how, you know, someone who has been following these fights for so long, who sees themselves as a, a climate activist who wants to um, be part of this movement can really sit on, on the sidelines any longer with this kind of thing going on. So we put out, you know, a blog couple of days ago saying we are we are the official opposition now. So that means a couple of different things. Um, I think it means that, um, you know, if we have a majority NDP government, we have um, a lack of boldness, a lack of vision, a lack of urgency on climate, broadly speaking, um, not in, in a lot of different ways. There's, there's kind of scary similarities between the Liberal and the NDP platform on, on climate. We don't have a balance of power with the Greens. We have the Liberals going into a leadership race, as you say, and we have, um, you know, we the, the the opposition, the official opposition is kind of in disarray in, in that sense. We have, there, that needs to be healthy, it needs to be robust. It's gonna, you know, those will both come up and play their role. But um, I think we, we kind of know where we stand now, right? We have this majority, we, we know where we stand and, and um, we need to push back. We need to be stronger. We need to push back more strongly. And I think on that's kind of on the political side. And I, you know, I would you both have takes on that too that I'd like to hear about. But I, I also think that we need to be offering our support to the front lines where, um, um, you know, this is the front lines of the climate crisis and it's the front lines of um, decolonization of supporting um, communities who are being removed from their own lands, people who are being dragged away at gunpoint um, from from lands that are rightfully theirs. So. That's kind of um, work that we need to do. We need to find ways as Dogwood to draw the links and draw the connections, find ways to connect people who are not ready to go and no one's gonna you know, get arrested, but we are like a middle space, right? Where we can bring people, let people know what's going on, let people know how they can support with, with their money, with their time, with their energy from afar online and connect people with those opportunities. So I definitely think we have a role to play there and, and a, a kind of bigger role than we have as these two pipelines um, try and push through an unwilling province and that I guarantee you is going to rise up uh, really strongly against that. I agree. And I'm, I'm relieved in a way that the election is over so that we can put our attention and resources into this. You know, um, <laughs> my enthusiasm about uh, the democratic process has waned <laughs> over the years as we see, you know, just the inadequacy of our, of our institutions in responding to these uh, rapid large scale crises. And uh, yeah, I do think we need to start shifting resources and attention and bringing our supporters along. Um, yeah, I'm in Northern BC and we just got a weather alert for the weekend. So we're expecting a foot of snow. It's like minus eight today. And uh, the Wet'suwet'en folks I was talking to call this raid season, like, this is the time of year, uh, the last two years, when the cops have come in. Uh, for whatever reason, they like to do it when it's like minus 20, minus 30. Uh, makes it much harder for people to physically uh, hold space or occupy bridges or equipment or anything because, you know, you're at risk of dying of exposure. And so um, this is raid season. And with the pace and scale of the work uh, both on Coastal Gaslink and Trans Mountain that I've witnessed with my own eyes in the last couple of months, um, you know, things are coming to a head. Uh, and yeah, we're not going to be able to put our heads in the sand. 
um, not just at Dogwood, but as citizens of BC. Like this is this is not going to be something that um, that we can get away from. And so our 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 responsibility is to turn and think about how we can best use our privilege, our resources, our platforms, the access that we may still have to politicians. We'll see. Um, in order to uh, to advance these issues and to and to lift up the voices uh, of people on the front lines, and so I don't know what that's going to look like, but I, I know that it's essential that there's no no way to remain like a, a relevant and useful climate organization in 2020 um, without allying ourselves directly with uh, with people on the front lines of this crisis. At an organizational level, I was thinking about this today, and you know, like the ban big money legislation. Um, has forced the parties to raise money from individuals, we're on the same track, right? And I think that needs to continue because that's what keeps us nimble and that's what keeps us um, independent, you know? And so uh, I think we've done a really good job in the last few years, weaning ourselves from the traditional sort of environmental world funding of, of grants and foundations. And we've got a higher and higher proportion of our budget every year that's uh, coming from individuals. And so we can't lose sight of that as an organization that needs to continue uh, again, in order to make sure that we can respond to these crises when they come up and that we, that we have like full editorial and strategic independence around how we respond and how we channel these, these resources in, in moments of crisis. Um, we're going to have to find new audiences. I remember when uh, Trudeau was elected and a lot of folks who were, you know, our friends when Harper was in power, they were happy to just, you know, kick back. Once, once there was a new government, it was like, ah, you know, don't, you know, give them four years, don't be so hard on them. And uh, we're going to see the same thing with Horgan. You know, there's going to be a lot of comfortable middle-class centrist folks who were, you know, quite concerned about climate change and indigenous rights when Christy Clark was in power, who prefer a kinder, a kinder, gentler approach to, uh, you know, accelerating the climate crisis, sending SWAT teams onto indigenous land. If it's being done by progressive politicians, we know there's a lot of people who are just going to freeze, who used to be opposed to these things, but can't reconcile it with, you know, their, their, their trust and admiration of, uh, of the, you know, the more progressive party. And so we're going to have to find new audiences. We're going to have to talk to people who are not reflected in our electoral system, but there's a lot of us who feel like things are not going in a very good direction. Um, and that both parties, both major parties that have held power in BC, uh, are not walking the talk on climate change. And we need to become, I think, a, a vehicle for, for those folks um, you know, outside of elections and in between elections, uh, there's, there's work to be done in organizing that audience and in amplifying their voices. And we're going to have to keep adapting to COVID, right? Like these in-person events and door knocking and stuff, that's not coming back for a long, long time. And so we have to keep figuring out how to organize people, um, in the era of social distancing, how to, how to have offline events that are safe, uh, that allow for that personal connection, um, that is so important to building relationships, but also get better at, uh, at organizing online and finding, finding our people, um, through the, through the platforms that they're on. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. I think this is in a way, like it's a relief to just know, okay, we've got a majority government for the next four years. You know, it takes away all the guesswork and all the speculation and all of the questions around election timing. And, you know, the minority government could have fallen at any time. And so we were always kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And now we, we know where we stand. And I think this is the time to, to regroup, to get really solid on our strategy and to start moving those resources towards, um, towards these frontline struggles. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be 
to be in it with uh, with both of you and with the whole crew at Dogwood and the volunteers and all of our donors and allies and uh, the folks who are watching the, the dozens of people watching <laughs> our nerdy post-election show. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Any concluders, any closing thoughts? Um, what the next four years is going to look like? What uh, what you're excited about? We should have planned this. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've said everything. <laughs> well, we can look at some trends. You know, I don't think things are going to get less dark and scary in the United States. So our mm -hmm. our English speaking neighbors to the south, our largest trade partner, the people who produce most of the media we consume, they're they're heading towards a really dark time in their history. And so there's a there's a tendency to compare ourselves to the United States and say, ha ha, you know, like we're doing so great. Nothing, you know, it's not so bad here, right? And uh, I think that that lets our leaders off the hook for a lot of things because they're like, oh, well, you know, it could be, could be worse. Look at the shit show in the United States. And so mm -hmm. I think we're always gonna have to push back against that and to, you know, and to hold our leaders accountable uh, regardless of whether they're comparing themselves to, to Donald Trump. So that's, that's gonna be one challenge for sure. But there's just no way to escape the vortex, like whatever happens in the US over the next four years. I don't know what's gonna happen in November in the election, but whatever unfolds as a result of that is gonna have profound effects on our society, on our culture, on our economy. And so, yeah, when I, when I think about the next four years, um, none of that is headed in a good direction. None of the indications are good. So it, uh, it makes our work harder in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to sugarcoat that. I don't think that we're going to see like some magical return to normal if Joe Biden wins the presidency, you know, mm -hmm. we are out of time to, to start dealing with the climate crisis. And so what the U S does is going to have enormous influence on energy markets on financial markets on, you know, all of the other forces that, uh, that shape our lives here too. Well, and I think that's exactly when you said what what's going to happen um, between now and 2024. That's exactly what came to mind for me is climate. I mean, we we are at the end of there is no more time. Like we have eight years remaining. Um, this is this is the time to like stand up and and take charge. And like this is the time for governments to take action. Well, the time was actually like a long time ago, but um, we have no other choice. And we talk about that with youth, but for all of us, we have no other choice. Um, so we all have to come together right now. We all have to take a stand. Um, public services are one, one piece of the puzzle, um, but like this is an urgent situation we are in the climate. And in four years, um, who knows what we're gonna look like. I'm from the interior. So for me, it's very real. Every spring there is flooding and every, summer, fall, there are wildfires and they take people's houses and they take people's lives and they take people's livelihoods. And, and th those impacts are happening now and, and they were happening 15 years ago. And, and the inaction is just making it worse and worse every summer. Um, and like, we have no other choice. This is, this is the point we're at now. So um, like, I guess this is an appeal to people like step up, step up with us um, and, and join the cause like we need we need people to, to demand better of our of our politicians yeah and i think i mean that's the question i go into the next four years is how do we go, be bolder go further and faster right like that is 
what we need to do. We know that, as you say. Um, and I think that we can't, obviously we can't rely on governments, you know, as you know, and we can't only put our, we can't only put our pressure, we can't only put our eggs in that basket. And so when I reflect on like where we're going over the next four years, it's like that combo of government pressure and something else, like the kinds of mobilizations and outpourings that we've seen over the last year are those tipping points, those, those breakthrough moments that can switch us into further and faster. And that's kind of when I look for hope, I look to those kinds of, um, those kind of moments. Right? I, I, I don't see that. I don't get that bubble up of hope when I look at, at our elected representatives. I see it when I see those big youth-led, honestly, and, and people power, right? Like that is what's going to, um, that's what's going to keep, that's going to allow us to survive if we manage to move further and faster. And that's, it's getting that, um, making sure we are able to do both and that that we as a movement are able to like keep that pressure up on, on, on decision makers, but build that grassroots fire and that grassroots power that can allow us to get where we need to go. Well, if I have one sort of hopeful takeaway, it's that the public is way ahead of our politicians on this, on indigenous rights, who makes decisions on the land base, what we need to do in response to climate change, cutting off oil companies from fossil fuel subsidies, investing in renewable energy and all these things, the public is way ahead of our politicians. Our electoral system is broken. It does not deliver results that reflect how, where people are actually at and what they believe. And so if we can crack the code and figure out how to start translating those values and those sentiments that people hold um, into the kind of urgency, you know, I think we can drag our politicians along. They're not going to lead us into the climate fight. They're not going to lead us into the, the mobilization, uh, you know, the fight for our lives. They're going to have to be dragged into it. And they're dragging the oil companies behind them, right? And all of the lobbyists and all of the interests that are trying to maintain the status quo, they're going to always be in tension between the public and between those, those big uh, forces of capital. And so, yeah, we're going to have to figure out how to just get our, get our hands on the rope and just start playing tug of war with, uh, with industry um, over the next few years. And our politicians are the ones in the middle. So, yeah, I'm, I couldn't think of a greater group of folks to be, to be heading into it with. I'm, Really glad that uh, that both of you were game to do a, a Facebook Live on a Saturday night at 11 o'clock. Um, thank you Where so else much. would we be? <laughs> <laughs> I would rather, nowhere would I rather, uh, yeah, digest election results than with, uh, with this fantastic crew. So yeah, this is where I want to be. <laughs> All right. Should we, should we wrap it up? Say goodnight. Do a Zoom wave. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> Bye, everyone.